Welcome to the Beyond Numbers COVID-19 and Society podcast. We are partners from the Form Horizon 2020 project, which looks at the COVID-19 pandemic through an intersectional lens. The past two years have flipped our lives upside down. The effects of the COVID-19 pandemic go far beyond physical health. COVID-19 has changed our everyday life, how we work and how we interact with other people. It has also challenged our well-being and mental health. But did it affect everyone the same? It is clear that the pandemic also uncovered and deepened the already existing inequalities in our society. This podcast is dedicated to examining those inequalities and the impact that different measures have on different groups, which is also the aim of the Covenform project. The project has received funding from the European Union's Horizon 2020 Research and Innovation Programme. To learn more about the project, you can visit our website www.covenform.eu or follow us on Twitter or LinkedIn. Welcome to Beyond Numbers, COVID-19 and Society podcast. My name is Eliza and I'll be taking over from Svetlana today to host the fifth and final podcast episode. Over the past year, we've joined experts to discuss how COVID-19 has highlighted and even deepened societal inequalities, with the pandemic impacting individuals and communities differently. We've explored how intersectionality theory can help us understand underlying inequalities, the importance of communication and key elements that make for effective public health campaigns in times of crises such as the COVID-19 pandemic, how data and pandemic-related misinformation can impact our perceptions, as well as discussing gender, mental health and migration in the context of COVID-19. Despite COVID-19 feeling like a distant thought for some of us, the virus is still spreading and the effects of the pandemic are visible in our lives, especially in the lives of those most vulnerable. As this is the final episode of the podcast, we wanted to bring together community voices to listen to their experiences of the pandemic. Today, I am joined by two Covenform experts, James Edward and Madalena rigoga Bishop. James is a senior researcher and consultant at Sinus Market and Social Research. James manages tasks and work packages in several EU-funded projects, particularly interested in social ecological systems theory as a framework for interdisciplinary cooperation. Madalena Ricogabeshodo is a project manager at Factor Social, nowadays working predominantly on the Covenform project. Madalena also works as a social psychologist at Arisco, a civil society organisation for the promotion of education, citizenship and global health, and is a research assistant in the Faculty of Psychology of the University of Lisbon in the field of applied social cognition. Hi both. Hi Eliza, it's great to be Hi, here. Hi Eliza. Yeah, Hi. likewise, great to be here. Hi, thank you both very much for taking the time today to be part of the podcast. Before delving straight into the topic, I think it's important to understand what we mean when we speak about community. James, could you please explain how you would define community in this context? Sure. Uh, Well, community is one of those words that really seems to mean something different to everyone. Uh, But in the broadest sense, communities are simply groups of people that have something in common. And a community can be geographical, for instance, people who share common spaces, a town, a neighborhood. It can also be non-geographical. For example, we often talk about professional communities uh, like the health research community, us, uh, which is international but shares common interests and practices, uh, or it can be multidimensional. For instance, my street in Berlin, Sonnenalle, has a large Arabic community which shares common spaces, the, the street and the neighborhood around it, but also language and culture, etc. So within any society, you're bound to find many diverse types of communities. 
But equally important is that there is always diversity within communities. For example, in the Berlin Arabic community, there are speakers of numerous dialects. There are Lebanese Christians as well as Muslims, not to mention agnostics and Buddhists and everything in between, uh, different sexual identities, different uh, professional identities. And while it's common to see uh, ideological claims that this or that community is or should be pure, quote unquote, empirically, this is never the case. Yeah, I think the value of communities and the sense of belonging really came to light during the pandemic. However, as I said before, not all communities experienced the pandemic in the same way. So within the COVINFORM project, I know that you've conducted a series of interviews with civil society organisations to understand their role and how they witness the impact of COVID-19 on different communities. So could you please tell me a bit about the research the COVINFORM team has conducted? Right, yes. During late winter and early spring 2022, we interviewed representatives of a wide range of civil society organizations, or CSOs, in 10 EU countries. And our aim was to talk to at least five CSO reps per country, best case in a single city, because we wanted to get a sense of how the pandemic impacted geographical communities, groups of people who share common spaces. And But due to challenges recruiting in some countries, we ended up talking to 38 people, rather than the planned sample of 50 by the end of winter-spring 2022. Uh, additional interviews are still ongoing, and we will continue until the sample is full. Basically, what we wanted to find out are how CSO representatives and how their colleagues understood uh, vulnerability, how the pandemic impacted vulnerable groups that they work with, and how their organizations helped address these groups' needs as well as to, to gather recommendations for how the ability to address these target groups' needs could be supported and amplified in the future on a policy level and through coordination between CSOs as well. So, and during the interviews, we kept an eye out for stories and situations that the interviewees themselves found surprising or thought-provoking, inspiring, or just extraordinary in any way. And these kind of surprising stories are what we will focus on today. So when we analyzed these stories, we were struck by the fact that many of them dealt with what one team of health researchers identify as important elements of community, which is to say elements that people can share that give them a sense of somehow belonging to a community. Some of these elements are uh, shared spaces, which we've already discussed, shared spaces and locations, but also shared social ties, shared initiatives and actions, Etc. And interestingly, as well as dealing with these common elements, many of the stories that we recorded also somehow dealt with the diversity both inside and between communities. You know, that's really interesting. As you mentioned, James, in our podcast today, we will listen to a series of three stories taken from interviews with civil society organisations who were supporting and engaging with members of various communities throughout the pandemic, talking and reflecting about their experiences. I will turn to you, Madalena and James, as experts to discuss these stories. First story looks at the experience of a civil society organisation working in Vienna to support migrant women. So let's take a listen. I work for a women's support organization that operates in Vienna. We focus on migrant women of a Muslim background, and uh, we provide different support in lots of areas, from human rights issues such as anti-smuggling to domestic issues, um, for example, marriage and divorce counseling. We also provide German classes to migrant women, and this is where I work. Um, and our classes are focused on basic instructions on how to write and read and so on. Um, so what we've seen during the pandemic and what have I seen from the women I work with is that they organize themselves within their community. 
So to give an example, one woman from Syria, she told me about the regulations that would come into place the next day. And even I don't, didn't know about these regulations yet. I asked her where well, she got this information from. And uh, then she showed me a channel where this guy plains this in Arabic. So there's probably someone in the community who asks around and then spreads the word. And we know that the city made an effort to always have multilingual flyers and so on. But there is always a delay. And as an organization, we have to tell them uh, when these flyers are available to download. But we think it's easier to hear the information in your own mother tongue. And also a lot of the women I work with are illiterate in their native language, so they can't even read the flyers. There's no use in handing them out if they can't read it. But because they organize themselves in other ways, such as connecting with these messaging channels, we saw that they were actually quite well informed about regulations and measures. So when listening to the story, what struck me was how these communities of migrant women were organising themselves to receive information through their social networks during the pandemic. What insights can we take from this story, James? Well, as you as you mentioned, it's it's fascinating that these um, these migrant background women working with the CSO representative in question self-organized to access information in ways that official risk communicators had not anticipated. And this is really interesting to our project because we're specifically looking at this topic of risk communication. Uh, And to clarify, this is the way that governmental organizations and other public sector stakeholders communicate information about risks and crises like COVID-19, as well as the way that people access this information. And one project insight that many previous studies have also confirmed is that members of groups that are socially marginalized, whether that's by language or social status, or citizenship status, et cetera, often seek risk communication primarily from sources other than official channels. And specifically, they often use their own social networks. This can mean both online social networking services and also offline through word of mouth. So while official risk communication strategies often mention the importance of providing information in multiple languages and multiple formats that target marginalized groups, This might not really be enough if people are seeking COVID-19 information from their private WhatsApp channel or by phone from their friends rather than via governmental uh, websites or mainstream news or even uh, the doctor's office. Whereas this story focuses on COVID-19 information, social ties are also critical and the same factors apply when it comes to social and material support. For example, some of the marginalized informations that we've been talking to depend as much on their own social circle for childcare and elder care, et cetera, as they do on formal welfare institutions. And when the pandemic first hit, lockdowns were a double blow because not only did formal institutions cut back access, but people were also cut off from their informal support networks too. So insights from CSOs such as this are critical in trying to mitigate that risk of of a double loss of informational and and support access. If I may add on to what you just said, James, thinking back to the example given about the government creating leaflets and making them available to target groups, the fact that these groups still seek out their information through other channels may reflect the attitude that many officials take to transmit information during times of crisis. Even though we are most recently seeing a shift in these mindsets, official risk communication focuses mainly on providing information, and we know from evidence-based research that this is not enough. Simply providing information is just not enough to trigger behaviour change, and even more so when we are talking about mass behaviour change. 
at the beginning of COVID-19 pandemic, we had little information, let alone real-time data, particularly on vulnerable groups. So governmental actors and communicators lacked the early on evidence to inform better pandemic policies and practices. However, there was already some guidance available on how to communicate effectively in times of crisis. And we still see those in charge falling into the same old traps of human cognition and behavior, such as wanting so badly to reassure people that we are safe and that the virus is not going to get here, when the first most basic principles of, for instance, risk communication is to assume uncertainty, to state that what we know today may change tomorrow, and be transparent about the current status of things. And this happened in many countries and still continues to happen. So by not following these principles, this tends to lower people's trust perception on whoever is communicating information, and this in turn may also hinder people's willingness to, to adopt future measures. Also, just one more note, we must take into consideration key aspects, uh, such as having a targeted communication, which entails understanding the specific groups and their needs, their beliefs, their risk perception, as well as previous behaviors and attitudes so that we can act accordingly. And CSOs often have privileged access to all of this, even if in an informal way, and the social ties created are great boosters of people's trust in these organizations. We also know from evidence-based research that some vulnerable groups are less likely to trust the government. So again, CSOs play an important role in reaching out to these populations in an effective way that other entities may lack. Yeah, Madalena, I think you've made this challenge really clear, and, and but equally importantly, you've indicated uh, some pathways that CSOs have shown us that uh, can lead toward resolutions to these challenges. And the project has also shown some of these ways that that uh, in which this can really be turned into a resource. For example, in Gothenburg, Sweden, the local government employed bilingual and bicultural residents as health guides. And one thing that these health guides did very effectively was to use their own personal social network of connections within migration background communities to pass along timely and legitimate COVID-19 information. Uh, so in several research sites, actually, interviewees told us that CSOs with deep connections to social networks played a similar important role in distributing information and in some cases also even material support. And what's interesting to me is that policymakers also started to notice this. So when you look at policy documents from early in the pandemic uh, compared to later in the pandemic, for example, in Germany, policymakers gradually started realizing that putting out targeted info wasn't enough. They also had to make sure that it actually arrived to people. So we start seeing in these policy documents increasing refer references to so-called multipliers or people who are connected to certain communities that can use their social ties in these communities to multiply the impact of governmental information by making sure that it actually arrives. Yeah, I think what you both mentioned ties in nicely with the discussion we had in the third podcast episode about communication and public health campaigns reach the target populations. Um, so now we're going to move on to our next story. This story is from a civil society organisation based in Madrid in Spain that works to support a range of vulnerable groups. Since the beginning of the pandemic in Madrid, our organization has been key in reaching vulnerable groups who are usually out of the reach of government institutions. Our staff were at the forefront of social intervention in the face of COVID-19 and facilitated access to public services for groups that are usually reluctant to engage, such as migrants in irregular administrative situations, victims of sexual exploitation, women 
engaged in prostitution and homeless people. I believe that our organization acted as a bridge, serving vulnerable populations directly on the street or referring them to social services in relevant local administrations. For us, this was a radical paradigm shift in our usual intervention approach. Basically, our programs are based on listening, responding to people's needs and um, advocating for them. But during the pandemic, especially in the early months, we focused our attention on direct intervention with citizens in dire situations, providing services such as door-to-door -door deliveries of food bags and hygiene kits, and setting up mobile teams that help people with online applications to social benefits. Our organization attempted to cover the most basic needs of those who knocked on our door and at the same time tried to build their skills and empower them to adapt to the new context the pandemic created. The COVID-19 crisis deepened vulnerability. In fact, some of the people who asked us for help and applied assistance had never done so before. Families that had been able to make ends meet, even if they were working in the informal economy, suddenly found themselves unable to earn income nor apply to any of the ad hoc benefits put in place by the government. Also, self-employed individuals in small businesses found themselves facing growing costs and unable to find enough income and therefore were also applying for benefits for the first time. But probably one of the main lessons for us as a CSO was our capacity to network with all kinds of actors. The magnitude of the pandemic required pulling efforts and resources, building on existing cooperation networks between CSOs. Public-private collaboration also allowed us to channel a significant amount of resources to individuals that were difficult to reach because they were first-time applicants and they did not know how to apply for benefits through the appropriate channels, or because they found themselves so in the margins that they were almost out of the system. Our organization managed to help all these vulnerable groups thanks to thousands of volunteers who were mobilized in online and face-to-face -face actions that allowed our CSO to scale up its direct intervention, growing demands for goods and services requested by the population throughout the country were met despite the lockdown situation. On the other hand, the collaboration with other CSOs allowed us to maximize the limited resources available. For instance, during the health crisis, we combined efforts to find bands to deliver door-to-door -door packages with basic commodities. And once the lockdown was over, many of these packages um, were still being distributed from our own headquarters. Our CSO also collaborated with governmental institutions. For example, during the vaccination campaign, we were engaged in supporting vaccination of inaccessible populations, such as the homeless. This collaboration, both between CSOs and with governmental institutions, shows us that our resilience and our bridging potential for future early preparedness plans. This is a wonderful story because um, in the last story, we saw how people received information about the pandemic and its developments through their informal networks rather than just through official channels. And we also mentioned how some people seek not just information, but also support in this way. So CSOs with a history of contact with certain groups and their networks are critical access points through which this information and support can be distributed. And this story picks up on that. Some groups are much more willing to engage with certain kinds of organizations with others. For instance, people who work in the informal economy might be hesitant to engage with governmental welfare institutions, or as our Madrid CSO mentioned, they might also just not be able to because they aren't in the system at all. 
And the CSO noted that the pandemic had an especially severe effect on these people's income and livelihood. Uh, likewise for the self-employed, small businesses, etc. So in almost all of our countries, we found this. We found civil society organizations stepping into a dual role in these situations. First, like our Madrid CSO, they provided direct stopgap support, even when this was not part of their original uh, mandate. But second, they, they helped connect people with the public services that those people might not have used before or that they had trouble accessing, whether due to language barriers, lack of online access, bureaucratic barriers, or what have you. Um, and then another critical insight from this story is that different organizations bring different resources to the table. Some CSOs bring a volunteer network, others bring material resources like vehicles or IT support or funding, others bring access to the groups in need, uh, bonds of trust with those groups, and then some services can really only be provided by governmental institutions, but CSOs are needed to connect the needy to those services. And in research on adaptive governance and socio-ecological systems, we call this role bridging because it connects groups and organizations that don't have direct contact with each other, but need each other in some way. In almost all of our target countries, we, we find CSOs stepping into this bridging organization role. This is something we're planning to analyze and write more about in the future. Definitely, James. Also, following that idea of CSOs as having a bridging role, it becomes increasingly clear what an important part they play in regard to preparedness plans, both in terms of dissemination and in terms of implementation, by mitigating unequal and unjust impacts to those most vulnerable and disadvantaged. It's rather important that before a crisis occurs, two-way communication and engagement mechanisms are in place with different communities, and this means working directly with those communities, their leaders, and their respective re uh, regional and, and local governmental spokespeople and decision makers. So CSOs are often the ones filling in the gaps of governmental and public health regulations and services available, providing the necessary means and resources to those who fall into this kind of limbo of measures and procedures that don't easily apply to them due to their jobs, their working conditions, their family situation, citizenship status, as you also mentioned, and so on. And in line with the previous story, actually, we, we know from research that robust social networks can actually increase resilience, particularly among minorities and other socially disadvantaged groups. So in terms of actually in terms of resilience, there's there's more to it than than one might think. People are used to thinking about resilience in terms of, for instance, psychological well-being, but we can also conceptualize and operationalize it through a systems driven view, which is also one of the theoretical and methodological approaches that we use in, in the COVID-informed project. But the point is not that resilience is a good thing per se, but rather that understanding the resilience of a system, and a system, let's say a company, a governmental institution, or even a CSO, means understanding how it is affected, how it reacts, copes, and how it adapts to a disruptive event or crisis throughout time. So, for instance, understanding how these civil society organizations work together to overcome difficulties, to reach people in need and communicate with government entities, it gives us essential knowledge for future crisis management, which we must definitely be able to use in terms of lessons learned across the globe for the future. Madalena, I just wanted really to quick, quickly pick up on, it's critical that you mention that resilience isn't always a good thing, because when we use that term, we often talk about it in a positive way. For instance, the resilience of community bonds 
or family bonds in the face of a crisis. But negative things can also be resilient. There can be uh, patterns of behavior that are not suitable to a crisis situation can prove to be resilient within that crisis as well. And I think actually our last story touches on that's this so-called bad resilience and how we can try to mitigate bad resilience while amplifying and supporting good resilience. Yeah, sure. thank you. Thanks, James. Thank you. Um, so as you mentioned, James, in our last story, we will hear from a civil society organization based in Belgium, working with individuals with drug dependencies. Our organization focuses on providing specialized outpatient services for people with serious dependence problems on illegal substances. We use a wide variety of activities to support individuals, from preventative outreach work to daycare for homeless people. During the pandemic, one of the main challenges we faced was raising awareness about COVID-19 restrictions and enforcing them. This was difficult for many reasons. For example, the people we work with had very different understandings and prioritizations of COVID-19. Many of the people using our services did not take the crisis very seriously. There was an attitude of, I've been through so much already in my life, I'll survive this one too, for sure. It can just come and go. I've already had a lot of misery or problems. One more or less does not really matter. Certain fatalism is also a characteristic of the target group. And because of this, it was difficult to get them to follow the strict rules. And as the pandemic progressed, it became more challenging to convince our target group of the severity of the crisis. Also because, contrary to initial expectations that the virus would spread rapidly among the people using our services, the transmission remained relatively limited. We all expected that within our target group, the COVID-19 crisis would run rampant. We'd actually expected this because these people find it very difficult to stick to agreements. They follow very few hygiene rules. They hold on to each other very tightly in their peer group. We expected the contagion to spread very quickly, but that did not actually happen. Even though they're in unhealthy living conditions, there's a lot of infection risk in their behavior, there have been few infections. And that's also why raising awareness has been so difficult because people said, well, you're exaggerating or I'm not getting ill or very little is actually happening. We have had some serious cases here and there. We've also had one person die in hospital. So it's not that nothing happened at all, but we had expected much, much more. So, James, what can we draw from the story that we just listened to? This is a very rich story that touches on a few important points. Uh, first, nearly all of our civil society organization interviewees, not just here, but also in other areas, said that the groups that they worked with were extremely diverse, with different backgrounds, different lifestyles, and different groups make sense of challenging situations differently and they also make decisions differently. So for someone who's sleeping rough, who's homeless and has lived a really hard life, there might be an attitude of, okay, some people are getting sick, what's new? The CSO in this story reflected that this sometimes made it hard to convince people to follow recommendations and regulations, which when you think about it from their perspective, actually could even be interpreted as rational. Another surprising point that is mentioned in the story is that the CSO expected COVID-19 rates to skyrocket among rough sleepers, but at least for a while this didn't happen. And this made it even harder to convince this group that the problem was serious. So this is a problem not only because if a certain group is less likely to adhere to recommendations and regulations that raises the risk level for that group, but it also raises the systemic risk level, that is the risk of health systems overloading and failing. And this is obviously a huge challenge. But what we have to avoid in this situation is reductively blaming and shaming such groups, or even worse, categorizing such groups themselves as a risk. As a risk.
Uh, not only is this ethically wrong, but it's profoundly unproductive. It increases the distance between mainstream institutions and marginalized groups. It makes them even harder to reach. Rather than blaming and shaming, we have to try to understand where these attitudes and behaviors are coming from. And here's where civil society organizations that have been working with these groups for many years and understand them and have earned their trust are critical. In fact, this is really the link between all of our stories so far. The importance of bonds of understanding and trust in bridging service providers with people in need. Now, turning to you, Madalena, what insights do you think we can take from the story we just listened to? Actually, this story beautifully illustrates how different risk perceptions may result in different beliefs, attitudes and behaviours. So for someone whose life has been already perceived as too challenging, the threat of being infected with a virus that may not even cause me that much harm is nothing compared to the threat of not having a place to sleep tonight or having enough money to feed my children. And this cost-benefit balance and the impact each person perceives uh, that COVID-19 might have in their health guides our decision-making process. Like, for example, you could question, do I stay home and risk getting fired, or do I go to work and risk exposure to this virus that may be deadly to my elderly mom, of whom I take care of? This is another reason why targeted and multi-risk communication is so important in this effectiveness of the measures implemented, because this effectiveness depends on people's behaviors, which are also driven by their beliefs and their attitudes. Also, another important aspect that this story raises regarding unexpected low infection or transmission rates has to do with social density and mobility patterns. For instance, it may be harder for the virus to, let's say, enter an isolated town, but when it does, because someone with the virus traveled there, if preventive measures are not in place, then the spread is much faster. We know from other evidence-based research that diversity and ethnic distributions predict indicators at the sub-municipal level, for instance, higher rates of illness and mortality, because on, on one hand, the spread is faster in high-density populated areas, which we also know social, ethnic and religious minorities tend to live in. And on the other hand, um, if the population has a higher age index, is also more vulnerable to health aggravations. So interestingly, even though this group that the story addresses might be at higher risk due to typically low hygiene behaviors, they might not even get in touch with other people that often due to already being a segregated group with which people tend to not engage with. So even though there might be high close interaction within the group, there might be low interaction with people outside the group, making it less likely to get infected. And Lastly, another very important phenomenon to be aware of is also related to risk perception, is uh, the typical devaluation of prevention. So one may understand why this happens, because when preventive measures work, it gives us this illusory feeling that nothing's wrong and that the restrictions imposed are too strict and unnecessary. But when we perceive that the threat is not that bad, our risk perception lowers and we tend to not adopt individual preventive measures which in a larger scale leads to stricter measures having to be implemented to compensate for that damage. And it is a vicious cycle, but it is a cycle that can be broken. And especially by raising awareness regarding this phenomena is an essential role that civil society organizations play in mitigating psychosocial and health impacts of crises like this COVID-19 pandemic. It's been really great to hear both of your insights across these three stories that we've listened to. But as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, unfortunately, this is the final episode of our podcast. 
So I wanted to reflect back on all of the podcast episodes in our series and ask what your thoughts are on how we can bring the topics all together that we've touched upon. If I may go, um, as we have briefly explained in previous episodes, the Coven Farm project draws upon complex adaptive systems and intersectionality approaches. And this allows us to have a multi-level and interdisciplinary analysis of COVID-19 preparedness, responses, consequences, and experiences, particularly regarding vulnerable populations. So by using these approaches, we are able to understand the changes over time of the dynamics between several levels of systems that are intertwined and that we have somewhat addressed here today, for instance, government, public health, community, information and communication. So through the voices of citizens connected to CSOs, these stories help to illustrate how some groups of people who are more disadvantaged navigate some of the barriers that this pandemic has brought. Um, as we know that also typically marginalized groups are disproportionately hit hard by this type of mass crisis. So our COVID form project frames the COVID-19 pandemic as more than a health crisis, as we also want to better understand how broader and structural processes create or enhance certain vulnerabilities, or on the contrary, help to mitigate the pandemic impacts by in a way assessing the resilience of different populations, as well as the resilience of the different systems um, that we are all a part of. Yeah, thank you for wrapping up the topic, Madalena, and giving this general overview of the podcast. And James, what can we expect to see from Common Form in its final year of the project? Well, Madalena mentioned several interlocking systems, all of which play into the overall dynamics of a socio-ecological system, um, governmental systems, public health, community, information and communications. And we've completed interviews, not just with civil society organizations as discussed today, but also with governmental stakeholders, public health experts and practitioners, journalists, other communications professionals, as well as with members of a range of vulnerable groups, uh, women with low socioeconomic status, people with migration backgrounds, elderly residents of care homes, depending on the, the research site. And what you can expect based on all of this, aside from a range of different scientific publications that I hope will be really interesting, is an online dashboard to help policymakers assess vulnerability based on different indicators in different domains, as well as really concrete policy analysis and recommendations that we hope will contribute to a more effective response during the next such crisis. And on that note, we're going to have to wrap up the last episode of Beyond Numbers. COVID-19 and society. Thank you very much, James and Madalena, for speaking with me today. It's been great to explore these community stories with you. And thank you for all of the speakers that have joined our podcast over the past year. As James mentioned, although our podcast is coming to an end, the work in form still continues. To stay up to date with our findings, follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for listening to Beyond Numbers. Stay healthy and safe. Thank you, Elisa, and thank you, everybody at home. Thank you.